Amen. Well, grab your Bibles and open up to the book of Romans, chapter 9, verse 1. We're going through the book of Romans. The series is called Nail It Down, which is a look back to the Reformation. And also, we're nailing down some fundamentals of the faith in our life. And we're in the section of the book of Romans where we're learning that there is a God. He has a plan, and he is inviting you to become a part of the plan that he has been working out throughout all of history. Um, and so today the title is God's Plan in Christ Jesus. How many of you would raise your hand up and say that you're a planner? Raise your hand if you would say you're a planner. All right, go ahead and put your hand down. Now I know, I'm a planner too, I know the feeling you get when the plan changes. Am I right? I mean like the, you had a plan and the plan changed. Uh, I know your pain. Now, what the Apostle Paul is dealing with in this section of the book of Romans is this. His fellow countrymen, his Jewish family and friends, feel like the Christians are changing the plan. They're changing it. God had a plan. In the Old Testament, it was named Abraham and Moses. And now this Jesus comes along, and you're changing the plan. And what the Apostle Paul is trying to do is he's trying to show that, no, we're not changing the plan. This is the plan. This has been the plan throughout the whole Bible. So um, I, I'm going to, David, my friend, I'm going to cast you as a role today, okay? You're going to be a very skeptical Jewish man who loves the Old Testament, and you're going to just fold your arms, because you're not buying what I'm saying, all right? And, and from time to time, you're just going to shake your head like this. Because you love Moses, and you love Abraham, and you think I'm changing your Bible by adding all this stuff. So feel free, all right, to just, to just show your displeasure. But listen, I'm going to convince you, all right? It may take a couple weeks, but I'm going to convince you that what I'm saying is in the Old Testament, okay? Okay? All right. You're allowed to only give me this look today, all right? And then and you got to get back to supporting and loving your pastor. But I'll allow it today. All right, let's pray, and then we'll get into the Word together. Father in heaven, thank you for the Bible. Thank you that there is a plan. Thank you that you have revealed it in the Word. And thank you that you invite us all to be a part of it. We just ask that you would show us your glory Show us, Lord, how we can know that we are yours, your chosen children who will be with you forever. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, I've got a funny story as I'm opening my Bible to Romans chapter 9. <clears throat> Yesterday, Pastor Mark and I ran a half marathon uh, over at Starved Rock. And we love to run. This was like our seventh half marathon that we have, we have done. And uh, I checked the website before the race. And Starved Rock, how many of you have been to Starved Rock before? It's not flat. Am I right? Lots of hiking and up. So I checked the website, and they're like, oh, no, it's flat. It's flat. Don't worry about it. We run right along the river. So I was like, all right. Well, the river got flood to the flood stage, so it's rising. The whole Starved Rock State Park parking lot is underwater, like the signs and everything. So they, so they had to change the route, right, change the plan, okay? And, and so, so we got there. We started running this race, and it's like 160 feet down, 140 feet up. 40 feet down, 60 feet up. Mile after mile, and I'm like, they lied on the website. They lied on the website. Right? I would have written a review, but I just can't do that while I'm running. But I, what happened was they had to change the plan, and it really threw everything off. So that emotionally, this is what's happening here. People are jarred because it feels like God is 
changing the plan. Here we are in Romans 9, verse 1. Paul says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. He's like, my conscience is clear. The Spirit is clear. And he uses the word Christ, which is the word for Messiah. He said that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They're Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. From their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. The first thing you can write down is this. Believe Jesus is the promised Messiah. This is what Paul is preaching, and this is what he's modeling. He, he believes Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, and he wants others to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. The word Christ comes from a Hebrew word that means Messiah, the promised ruler, the, the promised deliverer. Um, and when you translate into the Greek, you get the word Christ, the anointed one. And you would anoint a king, you would anoint a ruler. So the idea here is Christ uh, is the promised Messiah. And Paul models for us here what it means to come to that realization. He's saying that he believes it, and he wants others to believe it too. So often Christians are content to look around at the loved ones in their life, the neighbors, the friends, the family members, the co-workers, and to not want them to come to know Christ, to feel like, well, they'll be okay probably, you know, as long as they're good, and, you know, it's just my truth. And whatever they believe and however they behave, that's just between them and God. And Paul models for us what it means, listen, to have great sorrow, for the lost. Great sorrow to have unceasing anguish for the lost. He goes so far as to say, I wish that I myself could be cut off from Christ, meaning go to hell. Lord, if it means they get in and I don't, leave me, take them. Now I'm so convicted by this verse, that's not my heart. Uh, that's not, I mean, I've got so many relatives and friends who aren't Christians, and I've, I've gone through periods where I've prayed fervently for them and then made an attempt to share the gospel with them, and it doesn't go well, and I'm like, fine, you're on your own. I tried. You know, I don't say that, but I feel that. I feel like, well, and this is part of the problem is Paul's dealing with the reality that his friends and family members feel like they're all right. Isn't that part of the problem? They think they're just fine right? They think they're great with God. And you come and tell them they're not, and they're like, well, who are you to judge me? Paul's dealing with all of that. But I love his heart. This is a Jew. Paul is a Jew who persecuted the church of Christ because he believed that this new way was wrong. He threw Christians in jail and killed them. And then he woke up to the reality that Jesus is the Lord. And now he's heartbroken for his people. He wants them to see it too. And listen, Christian, you should want your loved ones to see it too. You shouldn't settle for allowing your heart to grow cold toward witnessing to the lost. And it starts with anguished prayer. I would love for you to just commit this week to a week of anguished prayer for the lost in your life. A whole week where you're, where you're praying fervently for them and saying, Lord, Lord, I have great sorrow in my heart for this person. I remember hearing D.L. Moody's testimony and he said somebody came into his shop one day and and. and shared the gospel with him, and he said, this man was weeping for my sin. 
And D.L. Moody said, here I was so confused, I had never wept over my own sin, but here's this man who was weeping for my sin. He's like, maybe I should start weeping for my sin if other people are weeping for my sin. And, and here's the thing, this intercession is you're weeping on behalf of someone who's not there yet. And that's prayer. And Paul's here, he's feeling it. And then I would say, after you have anguished in prayer, take a leap. Try and have a conversation. Try, maybe they'll give you a minute or five or a breakfast for 30 minutes or whatever, but try and have a spiritual conversation with someone who you know is not saved by Jesus Christ. And then remember, it's a process. It's a frustrating process, and God takes time. You don't, you don't have to be obnoxious and rude. Don't go to the Mother's Day party today and be like, hey, you're going to fry like bacon forever. Let me tell you how to avoid that conclusion to your life. Okay, Pastor Ryan does not endorse blunt, rude, judgmental witnessing, okay? Uh, but, but patient, loving, kind-hearted. Hey, I just want to know where you're at spiritually. Hey, I know you're going through some stuff. I want you to know I'm praying for you. This, this loving, it's almost like the tide. Like when you share the gospel with someone, you should just go as far as they'll let you go and then, and then get back out to sea. And then when the time comes again, do it again. That's the way it's done. Believe Jesus is the promised Messiah, and that's not just for you, that's for everyone. Now this obstacle Paul was facing is his Jewish friends and family thought they were fine, right? Why? Well, jot this down. The nation of Israel revealed Christ's purpose. There are all these amazing things he lists, but they miss the point of how these things strung together for a purpose. Uh, he says here in verse 3, for, you know, they're my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh, Verse 4, they're Israelites, and to them belong, and then he lists these things. And he says the adoption. The adoption means that God did uh, adopt Israel as a special nation, and he had a relationship with Israel, he, he does, that is unlike any relationship he has with every other, any other country. Uh, it began when God, 2000 B.C., called Abraham, a man of faith, out of Ur, away from his gods, and said, Abraham, Go and I will show you a land, I'll give you a seed, a children, and a blessing. Abraham was like 75, 80 years old, no kids, no kids, and uh, Abraham and Sarah, Sarah was barren, left, followed God to this land of promise, which is where Israel eventually would be, but back then it was just a, you know, nothing, and Abraham just followed God, followed him to this new place, and God kept saying, you're going to be a daddy, you're going to be a granddaddy, you're going to be a great-granddaddy, and Abraham finally was like, I don't have any kids! You keep talking about this nation you're going to make for me, and I don't have one child. And God just kept saying, don't worry, it's going to happen. Well, Abraham kind of jumped the gun a little bit, and with Hagar, one of his servant girls, had a child named Ishmael, and thought, well, I guess we got to get it done on our own, and that was a mistake. Uh, but God did pronounce a blessing on that child Ishmael, and a whole nation of people came from that child, right? And then finally, when the time came, God gave Abraham and Sarah a child. Who is that child? Do you know the name? Isaac, the child of promise, right? The name means laughter because Sarah was like, you know, 90 years old and she had a baby. So she was like, ha, 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 let's name him laughter because this is hilarious. <laughs> it's laughable. Child of promise, miracle born. And on that child, Isaac rested the promise God made to the world. In you, all nations will be blessed. What does he mean by that? It means that through Abraham, God would bring about the Jewish people. Through the Jewish people, Jesus Christ would come into the world. So the promised seed of Abraham was Jesus Christ. I don't know what you were doing, planners, 2000 BC. What were you doing? What were you planning? Nothing! God was planning salvation. And he was doing it with this guy named Abraham. 
And so there is the adoption, this special chosen person, chosen for a special relationship and a special purpose. Then there was the glory. God revealed his glory. Uh, as, as a, you know, he also goes on to mention the patriarchs. So Abraham had Isaac. Isaac had Jacob. Jacob had the 12 sons, which became the 12 tribes. You know, they were imprisoned in Egypt for 400 plus years. Then God delivered them out under Moses, right? This is the plan of God. And so here you have the Israelites coming out of the land after Pharaoh was decimated. Moses parted the Red Sea and they walked in. You know, they spent some time in the desert because they were naughty. And they finally got in under Joshua. And that's where Israel came from. This is God adopting a nation, a chosen people, and there was glory in that. They followed a pillar of fire. God's glory was revealed to them and through them. Moses got to see God's glory in the burning bush. Here's a picture of Moses that the archaeologists dug up recently. It's amazing what they find on these sites. <laughs> picture wasn't faded too much either, but Moses walked, Moses, first of all, encountered God in the burning bush. Okay. God's like, I'm going to start by just setting a bush on fire. Then he set a mountain on fire at Sinai, a whole mountain. Moses walked down that mountain. His face glowed like, like lightning, and he brought these tablets inscribed by the finger of God. And let me just say, if you're living in this life thinking you get to just make up your own morality as you go along, just hear me. A man walked down a fiery mountain, and his face was glowing with light, the light of heaven, and he had two stone tablets that were written by God's finger. You don't get to make up your own morality in this life. There is a law of heaven above, and you are under it. God has a law, and he reveals it. What glory that was! And that was called the covenant. It says here the covenant, or the covenants, the law, the Mosaic law. Um, and then God set apart a worship through the tabernacle, and ultimately the temple under Solomon. Um, and there was the worship. Do you know the Psalms is, a, is the hymn book of the Old Testament? The Psalms were meant to be sung uh, by the Old Testament people. Um, so there were, the, there were the psalms, there were the songs, there was the worship. There was also the promises, which could be the prophets, God making promises of what he's going to do. Through Isaiah, through Ezekiel, the promises, God gave them prophets who foretold the future. And one of the greatest things they talked about was the coming Messiah and, and the new covenant that would eventually be given to God's people. And Paul even gets to the part, uh, David's not going to like this one bit, but Paul even gets to the part where in the Old Testament... God talks about bringing the Gentiles in as his chosen people too. I know, I, I know, all right, just, just give me some time. But it's in there, it's in there, it's not a new plan, it's in there. So the nation of Israel revealed Christ's purposes. The patriarchs led to something, and the Jews missed how all of it went together to point to Jesus. The Jews would say things like, Abraham is our father. We have Moses. Why do we need this Jesus? And what they were saying was this. We're good because of our bloodline. We're good because of our Ancestry.com report. We're Abraham's children, and therefore we are automatically God's chosen people. We're, we're good forever. Paul is going to dismantle that by using their own book. This is not a New Testament concept. He's like, I'm going to use the Old Testament to break that apart. But they're missing how all of it came together to point to Jesus. Here's a picture of a light bulb. And imagine everything in the Old Testament as being like, wow, God judges Pharaoh. That's an amazing incident. That's like, wow, his glory. And then, whoa, David killed Goliath. Wow, what an amazing story. But once you start lining all of them up, here's the next picture. They all point to something. Every 
individual story in the Old Testament forms this blinking arrow that points to what? To the cross. To the cross. And they're like, we've got all these amazing blinking lights. What do we need Jesus for? This is what it's all pointing to. Paul's trying to show them this isn't a new plan. The nation of Israel revealed Christ's purpose. He says here, after this big list, the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises, to them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So who's Jesus? Jot this down. Christ is a divine ruler forever. Christ is a divine ruler forever. Uh, they didn't use punctuation when they wrote down the Greek manuscripts. But it's pretty clear what is said here. Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Some people do say, well, you know, that could mean Christ, period, God is overall blessed forever, meaning it's different, it's separate. But the most natural reading of this text is it's describing Christ as a divine being. Christ is a divine ruler forever. Who do you say Jesus is? Sometimes Jesus would just ask people, who do you say I am? Who do you say I am? It's the most important question you'll ever answer in your life. The Bible says Jesus is the divine ruler on whom hinges God's entire eternal plan. He is the divine ruler forever. And Paul's heart here is to try and show his Jewish brothers and sisters, listen, you're right, Moses is amazing, you're right, Abraham is amazing, but listen, listen, it all pointed to Jesus. I think a great modern-day equivalent of what Paul is doing here um, can be seen in a recent uh, conversation I watched between John MacArthur, who's a Christian pastor, and Ben Shapiro, who is a Jewish uh, popular uh, political analyst. And uh, Ben Shapiro and John MacArthur sat down for like an hour-long Sunday interview. I want to show you the whole thing, but I can't because I don't have enough time. You'll be late to Mother's Day brunch. But I want to show you a clip because John MacArthur reaches into this very passage to talk to a modern Jewish uh, thinker about what's different between Christianity and Judaism. So check out this conversation. So I think that's the issue. Um, it's what do you do with Jesus? That's the issue of Christianity. And I would just say, I have such a love for Israel. I mean, all, all the people I love the most are Jewish, from Abraham you know, to, the, to the, the Apostle John, who wrote the last book in the Bible. Um, I have the same passion that Paul had. He could almost wish himself accursed for Israel's sake yeah, because they, they have, a, they have a, a knowledge of God, but, but, but they don't know him because he can only be known through Christ. And that's the Christian message. This is Judaism's culmination. So I, I don't see Judaism and Christianity as antithetical. I see them as perfectly complementary, so that what the prophets said the Messiah would be, Jesus was. Do you see how his tone was so warm? Do you see how his heart was, was, was so loving? Do you see how he was so in favor of all that the prophets, and, and then he's, but he reached into this very passage, right? And he said, I was a curse and cut off to the Jewish people. This is what Paul's doing. You know, this is what Paul's doing. He, with this, you can almost hear him saying the same exact thing John MacArthur said. You know, yes, yes, everything Judaism did, but it culminates in Christ. 
And what an amazing example John MacArthur, Pastor MacArthur, gave to us about how we can share our faith with people and basically say, believe, Jesus is the promised Messiah. And this is what Paul is showing us here in the Word. So number one, believe Jesus is the promised Messiah. The nation of Israel reveals Christ's purpose. He is a divine ruler forever. Number two, believe God's promises found in God's Word. Uh, it goes on to say this in verse 9, but it is not as though the Word of God has failed. Now, David's really afraid because he thinks I'm getting rid of the Old Testament. I mean, he thinks we're just chucking the book out the window. You know, 27 new books and get rid of the Old Testament because we're good now that we have Jesus. And he's like, whoa, whoa. All right, nobody's taking away my book of Psalms. Nobody's taking away my book of Proverbs. You're trying to, or are you saying everything God did in the Old Testament just failed? So what, what becomes of the reality that God had this whole plan coming together, and if you think Jesus is the Messiah, the plan didn't work. The Jews rejected him, right? So did his plan just fail? Did, and, and you have to understand that the Jews never, never really counted on their Messiah to be a defeated criminal thrown in a tomb. They wanted him to be a conquering ruler who overthrew Rome. Now, there are plenty of passages in the Old Testament, particularly in Isaiah, that talk about this Messiah as being rejected, right? They overlooked that because they wanted their Messiah to be a political champion. So the thought now is, well, if Jesus was rejected, clearly God's promises failed. No, it's not as though the word of God has failed. Now, notice that he calls it the word of God. You have to understand that in order to know God... Um, there's a few ways God reveals himself. General revelation is when he speaks to us through nature, creation, uh, right, conscience, and, and it's the general awareness that there must be a God. You see a, an amazing sunset over a, a beautiful mountain landscape, and you're like, there's got to be a God. Nobody's going to tell me, you know, that nothing times, you know, nothing equals all of this, right? Like, th there has to be a creator. You can arrive at a general understanding of who God is just by looking at nature Right? You could arrive at a general understanding of his moral law just by listening to your conscience. That's general revelation. But special revelation is when God works to make himself known. When God works to, works to make his will known to you. That's called special revelation. He does that through his word. And this is called the word of God. This is not a human book. Okay, this book was handed down to us, written by men. But the Bible says God spoke to us through the spirit as the prophets were carried along. So when you're reading this book, you're reading God's lips, okay? And if you agree with that and you understand that God revealed himself through his word, then you know that his promises have not failed and they never will. Now here's another thing. Israel is also special revelation. When you look to how he treated Israel, you learn about who God is and what his plan is. Israel basically acts out nationally, what God wants to do for you spiritually. What's with this whole parting of the Red Sea? Great magic trick. But it's more than that. It's acting out how God must part the waters of death so you can get through safely on the other side. You see? Egypt. Oh, I love that story. All those plagues were amazing. What a great movie that was. No. God has to take sin and death that threatens you, slavery that holds you fast, and break you out to put you in a promised land. Do you see how he uses Israel as like the old flannel graph? 
showing you in Israel what has to happen in your soul. So Israel is special revelation, but it's meant to point us to Christ. So therefore, we are not to disregard the Old Testament or think it was wrong. We're supposed to see that the promises there pointed to the Lord Jesus. God did write a book. We agree. And Paul now begins to use the Old Testament to show that the New Testament Jews were getting the plan wrong according to their own book. So he says here, It's not as though God's word has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Israel can be referred there as Jacob. Jacob's renamed Israel or the country. Uh, and not all the children of Abraham, not all our children of Abraham, because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I'll return, Sarah shall have a son. So here's the point. The Jews would say this. We're the bloodline of Abraham. We're God's chosen people. Paul comes along and quotes Genesis 21.12, right, 2000 B.C., and points to the time when God revealed to Sarah, hey, next time you're going to have a child. And in that context, God says, through Isaac, your offspring will be reckoned. Here's why this is important. Abraham had a lot of biological children through Hagar, the Ishmaelites, lots of them. And if you were to say to the Jews in the New Testament, hey, are all the Ishmaelites equal to you in God's chosen people? Oh, no, no, no. Do you see what he's doing? You're saying because you're biologically connected to Abraham that you're good with God? So are the Ishmaelites. So then he's anticipating what they'll say next. Well, yeah, yeah, fine. But Abraham had Isaac. Isaac had Jacob. It's clear that through that line, God's favorite children, the best of the bloodline, are revealed. So we're the, we're the best of the bloodline. Is that true? Well, it says in verse 10, not only so, but also in Rebekah, so Isaac and Rebekah were together. When Rebekah conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, so do you remember the kids, Jacob and Esau, twins, so now these two are born at the same time. And it says, though they had done, though they were not yet born, and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So that's Malachi 1, 2, and 3. Hey, Israelites, Abraham had more than one child, and you would agree that all those people who came from Ishmael are not the same as the chosen children of God, correct? Yeah, and Jacob and Esau, how did God make that choice again? Did he pick the best behaved brother? No. When did he pick which brother? Before they were born. So he just picked one, right? Yeah. And they were both pretty sinful, right? Yeah. So wouldn't you agree, David, that in the Old Testament, when God was making choices about who received his promise, he didn't pick all of Abraham's descendants and he didn't even pick the best behaved of the bunch? I know you don't agree with me, but I'm showing you in the Bible that that's what it says. So we can pull a few thoughts from this. First of all, jot this down. Never bank on religion, ancestry, patriotism, or culture 
to prove that you're a chosen child of God. Often people will grab onto these things. They'll say, well, my religion, you know, I'm, you know I'm, I'm so religious. I'm so religious. Well, a lot of the Jews were, and God rejected them. Well, ancestry. I mean, we're, we're, we're Abraham's blood. Doesn't matter. Patriotism. And this is a big one. Paul was kind of seen as rejecting his country. You're not a true Israelite anymore. Patriotism doesn't get you there. Culture doesn't get you there. Well, I wear the, wear the outfits and go to the ceremonies and burn the incense and give culture... I sing the songs around the holidays. Culture doesn't get you there. The point is that there were a lot of people who were going through the motions in Israel, but God didn't have their heart. He didn't have their heart. Never bank on religion, ancestry, patriotism, or culture. Here's a picture of Abraham and Isaac. And from the beginning, we know what God was up to. God led Abraham to a mountain called Mount Moriah, and he said, take this child, the child of promise, Isaac, who you had in your old age, and sacrifice him for me. So puzzling, so appalling, so disturbing. God never asked for this before, and he never asked for it after that. Kill your child for me. And, and there you are, so what, what's going to happen? And Abraham, the Bible says, reasoned that the only way God could keep his promises is if after he killed Isaac, God raised him back to life. So what was Abraham believing 2,000 years before Jesus began, before Jesus came, that the child of promise would die and would be raised to life again? Isn't that what you and I believed? And here's what's even more amazing. This is 2000 BC, and God led Abraham to Mount Moriah. Do you know where that is? That's, that's Calvary. That's where Israel would be. It's, it could have been the very place where Jesus would be crucified. You have a father offering his son, who he believed would come back from the dead, 2,000 years before Christ. Is there another plan? Because 2,000 years later, God the Father would offer his son in this very spot, and his son would come back to life. Listen, folks, this is the plan. This is the plan. The plan is named Jesus Christ. It was his plan when Abraham was there. It was his plan when Moses came along. It's his plan now, and it will be his plan for all time. God didn't have to go back to the drawing board when they killed Christ. And the Jews who were just like, I'm good, I got Abraham, I'm good, I'm good, I got the law, I'm good, I got Moses. Nope, you don't have Jesus. You don't have Jesus. So never bank on religion, ancestry, patriotism, or culture. And jot this down. Never bank on self-righteousness. Uh, when Rebecca was pregnant, um, God told her, two nations are in your womb. Two nations. So when it says here, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated, the word hated can be rejected. This refers to God's national process of election that he followed. Who would continue the line of promise? Who? First it's Abraham, then it's Isaac, then it's Jacob, not Esau, right? Then it goes through the, through the uh, 12 tribes. How did God make his choice? Not based on merit. He was not picking the most righteous of the bunch. Far from it. He was not looking at the, oh, I'm going to pick the best country ever. No. I'm going to pick the most righteous people ever. No. No. It's not based on those who are biologically connected to Abraham, and it's not based on those who are the best behaved. If I had to summarize what Paul's attacking here, the Jews believed they were the best of the bloodline. We're fine, because we're the best of the bloodline. And Paul's like, nope on the bloodline, nope on the best. Old Testament, God didn't pick the best of the bloodline. He's dismantling their racial, religious nationalism. Never bank on self-righteousness. In Galatians 3, 10 to 11, it says this, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law. Meaning if all you got is Moses and you're just doing the Ten Commandments, you're going to blow it. 
Verse 11, now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. He's quoting the Old Testament. The righteous shall live by faith. Not law, not blood. This is great news for you and me. It's great news for you and me for a few reasons. First of all, when you look at how God treated Israel, and you're like, I'm not an Israelite. What hope do I have of falling under God's blessing when he's doing all these amazing things for them and I'm not one of them? Great news for you and me. He's opening the door wide to the Gentiles. It's also great news because he's not looking for the best bloodline. He's not looking for the best behaved. That's not how he picked Israel, and that's not how he picks you and me. You don't have to be privileged by birth. You don't have to be privileged by behavior to be a called chosen child of God. That's not who he picks. It's not a spiritual beauty contest. Now, I have to point out here that for some people, this verse, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated, is frightening because they think it suggests that God just chooses people before they're even born who to love and who to hate. It's not what this teaches. God's not randomly picking before you're born, and then suddenly you're just realizing, well, either God loves me or hates me, and I've got to figure out which one it is. God so loved the world. God does love you. And God's not in the business here of hating and loving people before they're even born. What this teaches is that he did not select one based on merit. They were both sinful. They both needed his mercy. What we learn from this is that God will not pick you based on merit. He will not pick you based on your ancestry or your religious creed or your heritage or your patriotism. None of that pleases him. None of that pleases him. He picks you based on mercy. He picks you based on your relationship to the Messiah. He's driving you to a life-changing encounter with the one on whom the ages has come, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the way God forms his family, through his son, Jesus Christ. And he wants you to be aware of this plan so that you can respond to it, so that you can find your place in it. The Bible doesn't want you to have this dizzying sense of determinism. Well, I don't know. Maybe, maybe he loves me. Maybe he doesn't. That's not the point. The point is driving you to make a decision about the Lord Jesus Christ based on what God is showing you in your heart. Number one, believe that Jesus is the promised Messiah. Number two, believe God's promises found in God's word. Number three, abandon the way of works and receive God's mercy. Abandon the way of works and receive God's mercy. So it says in verse 9... Sarah has a son, that's Isaac. Then it says in verse 10, Isaac and Rebekah have Jacob and Esau. Then it says, verse 11, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. And it was written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. The point here is this. The way of works was never God's plan. It was the way of mercy. It's simply God's merciful call to call a people of faith to himself, through the promise of the Messiah. This is the plan. And you can only receive that through mercy, not through works. It says in Galatians 3, 8 to 9, and the scripture, for David's not going to like this verse. You, you can cover yours if you want to. But, uh, and the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. Yet Israel wanted one nation to be blessed. God said all. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Jot this down. Understand that God's plan is Jesus Christ. Old Testament, New Testament, the plan is named Jesus. 
It's not a new plan, it's the same old plan. The Apostle Paul, when he began writing this book, instantly launched into this very thing. In Romans chapter 1, verse 1, let me read to you what he said. He said this, Paul, a servant of Christ, Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who is descended from David, according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God, in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Hey, the bottom line is this is the plan. You are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Who do you say he is? Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. Are you ready to see that 2,000 years before Christ came, God was planning to introduce our world to him, that he formed a nation, and that he brought his own son, his very heavenly son, into the world to save us from our sins, that Jesus was raised from the dead, and that your only hope of eternal life is through the one who died in your place. This is the plan. This is the plan. It has been the plan. It will be the plan forever. Jot this down. Follow God's call to his son, Jesus Christ. Follow God's call to his son, Jesus Christ. It says in the Bible, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. If I had to summarize one final way what Paul is teaching here, here's what it would be. All your life, you probably thought that morality, spirituality is kind of like a bookshelf. And you imagine that on this bookshelf, there are people who are like the lowest of the low. Bottom shelf. Humans who are absolutely sick and morbid. Terrorists, right? Uh, I mean, people who are worthless in every way. There's no good in them, and everyone agrees. And then a step up from that are people who are pretty bad. They do a lot of bad. They rob people. They rip them off. They live to take advantage of others. They're violent. They're in jail. You know, they're, they're pretty bad people. And then there are people who are kind of in the middle of the road. Depending on the day, they can be, you know, big jerks or they can be okay. But they're like middle-of-the-road people. Most people would put themselves a step above that. Pretty good people. Living life the way they think it should be lived. Going to church now and then. Um, not doing any of the main crimes. And what people usually do is they place themselves on that shelf and then they draw a line beneath them and they say, really, anybody below this is going to go to hell. You know, God's going to kind of judge from this point up, everybody gets to go to heaven. And usually people put the line right beneath themselves, right? And then above me are those really good people. I mean, people who just devote themselves to curing cancer, and, you know, feeding orphans and, and going, and, you know. And then above them are like the world changers. Mother Teresa, people I'll never kind of be, you know, Bono, changing the world. They're way up there. And, and uh, sure, they're good, right? Now, here's the thing. The Jews thought they were top-shelf humanity, right? And everyone below them has no hope. Paul comes along and says, that's not the way it works. God's not going to pick the best of the bloodline. And maybe you feel like you're really something else, and the world has a lot to learn from you, and you're banking on your own glory and your own righteousness. Maybe you think you're bottom shelf, and you're like, I got no hope of pleasing God after what I've done or been or said, right? Or maybe you think you're middle of the road, and you think, I'll be okay. The Apostle Paul basically is saying, God does not draw a line side to side. He's not looking at people who have climbed to a certain level morally, spiritually. God does not draw a line this way. God draws a line this way. He draws a vertical line, and he cuts all of humanity into two groups. 
And there are those who have accepted the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ and are saved. And there are basement, bottom, dark-hearted, hopeless souls who are in heaven right now because Jesus redeemed them. And there are people who thought they were the top of the world at God's gift to humanity and they were crushed with the realization that they don't deserve to go to heaven. But they found Savior Jesus Christ. And whether you think you're up there or down there, if you repent of your sins and ask Jesus to save you, you are God's chosen people and his children forever. And whether you think you're top class or bottom shelf, if you reject the Messiah, God will send you away forever. There is a plan and there's hope for every soul. And God is calling you to salvation through his son, Jesus Christ, no matter where you're at in life. He's calling you to receive the free gift of eternal life and to become his chosen child forever. That's the invitation. It's what Abraham believed. It's what you have to believe. Same plan. And I want to give you a chance to respond to that right now. Let's pray together. Let's pray. Father, no doubt there are people here today who feel unworthy of being called your child, your son, your daughter. Oh, if everyone in the room knew the life they lived, surely we would not speak to that person. But you know, and you love the world. You sent your only son into the world to save sinners, not righteous. You don't choose the righteous. In fact, you turn the self-righteous away. You have come to save sinners. It is the sick who need a doctor. And I pray for anyone today who's willing to say, Father, I have no hope without you. I'll be condemned without you, but oh Lord, if you would just accept a sinner like me, forgive me, forgive me. And he will, he will. Though all would forsake you, Jesus never would. Lord, there are some here today who think they've been okay or think even more highly of themselves than they ought, that they are doing great, living right, a model to others, and I just pray that you would show them that if we come before you in self-righteousness and self-glory, we'll be turned away, and all of our sins, which we have so strategically forgotten or hidden, will come to light. And then what we really are will be revealed. That's a terrifying moment. I pray, Lord, that you would help those who are banking on their own prestige or their own inheritance, their own their own family, may they abandon that. And may they turn to the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation alone. Father, whether people came in here today with no confidence or false confidence, help them to reach out and to ask Jesus to save them right now. Say, Jesus, save me. Save me forever. You are the plan. You are the plan, the way, the truth, and the life. And I want you to bring me into God's family. And I pray that you would reassure us, Lord, that as we pray for our loved ones this week with great sorrow and unceasing anguish that you love them. You sent your Savior to die for them. And give us great conversations by your Spirit. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and let's sing together. I once was lost I walked away The road was dark So oh.